Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Good evening, and welcome back. We have been on a 167-hour hiatus since our last program first aired. I am joined by Keith Chester this afternoon, this evening, to talk about uh, the Foo Fighters. But before we get to that, let me just point out that uh, my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, is now a ebook, so you can buy it at Kindle and Noble if you are so inclined. And I certainly appreciate anybody who would do so. Uh, Keith Chester, who wrote literally the book on Foo Fighters, is an artist and a filmmaker living in Bel Air, Maryland. After seeing a daytime UFO in the mid-1960s, he became fascinated with the phenomenon. By the late 1980s, he was devoting considerable time to his research into UFOs. His book, Strange Company, is the first in-depth account of the unconventional aircraft observed and reported during the Second World War. Uh, Strange Company presents one of the greatest wartime mysteries, and it suggests that while the war was raging, someone or something from somewhere else was watching us. And I'd like to point out that I found this book to be extremely important to all UFO researchers. It changed my thinking. Uh, We had all thought that the modern UFO era began in 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. But after reading uh, Keith Chester's book on the Foo Fighters, I realized that the modern era actually began during the Second World War, and his book is well documented. It uh, presents an awful lot of information about what was going on in the investigation of the Foo Fighters and how seriously the high command in the Allied countries took it. And it was a phenomenon that was also witnessed by the uh, pilots in Germany and Japan. So it was a phenomenon that sort of observed both sides of the uh, war. Uh, The book is still available from Anomalous Books, and you can find it at Amazon.com if you'd like to. And I can't stress this enough. This is really the Bible for Foo Fighters. If you're interested in this phenomenon, this is the book that you need to get. get. Uh, Keith, you are there, I understand. Uh, Say that one more time. You are there. (laughs) You are available to to (laughs) talk to us right now. (laughs) Yes, and uh, let me uh, begin by saying it's a real privilege and honor to be being interviewed by you. Uh, You were one of my mentors during the the early 90s with your Roswell investigation. Very inspiring. You can take a look at what where we've gotten to today in Roswell in the 21st century. So you've enabled me to get another plug for my book in. (laughs) Very good, and I will get it. (laughs) 
Actually, the first question that springs to anybody's mind when we're talking about Foo Fighters is, what interested you in this specifically? Well, I had, I began investigating UFO phenomenon uh, in the mid-1980s, and I was fortunate enough to come across a situation where I had a witness who worked for the Office of Civil Defense in the 1960s. And this person claimed to have heard, overheard, uh, discussion about UFOs and the information and what not to reveal to the public, things like that. So that caught my attention. I had access to this witness. And so during that time, I figured I had no experience with investigating or researching or even interviewing people. So I uh, contacted what I considered, who I considered one of my mentors at the time, was uh, Mr. Leonard Stringfield because I, he had been releasing crash and retrieval reports through the years, and I had been reading his books. And he was very interested in taking on the case, so he became a quick um, mentor of mine. So we communicated, and that particular case ended, but it was his sighting during World War II that caught my attention. And through the years, I would talk to him about his sighting, and then I just became more and more involved and figured – I'd like to contribute something to the literature, and I, he was a good start. There, I couldn't find much on the World War II sightings, and his was such a rich sighting, I thought there had to be others like his. And that began the whole journey. Well, we're going to have to take our quick break already. This is the first uh, of the breaks we'll have to take. When we come back, we'll talk about Len Stringfield's sighting which is a very fascinating sighting. I will mention once again that Strange Company by Keith Chester is available at Amazon.com. It's an anomalous book, which is the publisher. So take a look at that, and it provides you everything you need to know about Foo Fighters. We will be back right after this. Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com.
shamanism is recognized as a method to access the quantum level. Mastery of shamanic skills puts spiritual information and healing power into your hands. Path Home Shamanic Art School, a bonded Colorado certified occupational school, has met rigorous state standards ensuring its director and instructors have the qualifications to teach the shamanic arts. Path Home offers its certification program in blocks of study. Block 1, a five-day intensive, will be held in the beautiful mountain town of Coldale, Colorado, October 13th through 18th. Registration deadline is September 12th. Experience journey trance, power animals, helping spirits, sacred space, and life purpose. Come discover your power. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, in the magical world of shamanism. Call 303-775-3431 or visit findyourpathhome.com. have returned with Keith Chester, author of the uh, Bible on Foo Fighters, uh, Strange Company. We were talking before we took our short break there about his interest in Foo Fighters, and he'd mentioned Lynn Stringfield. And those of you who have been around the UFO field for any length of time know who Lynn Stringfield was. He was one that sort of rekindled everybody's interest in UFO crash retrievals up to his work. Nobody was really talking about it because of the history of, of those sorts of stories. But uh, I guess Lynn became interested in UFOs in, during the Second World War when he had his own sighting of uh, some Foo Fighters. So Keith, since you had an opportunity to talk to the man about that, can you tell us a little bit about his sighting? Yes, uh it was August 28, 1945, and Len was an air intelligence officer with the 5th Air Force. He was in a C-46 transport aircraft with some of the first men to fly into the Asugi Aerodrome uh, in preparation for the influx of American troops. So what was taking place was um, in, during his uh, flight there between the islands of Iwashima and Iwashima, he looked out his window, and out coming from a uh, cloud bank were three silver discs. Uh, at arm's length, they were the size of a dime, and they were fine, flying parallel with the aircraft. And about Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. The time he saw these objects, he heard commotion in the cockpit, which um, brought the co-pilot back and said, prepare for an emergency landing. They were losing altitude, and he was, they were ready to crash. And Len did notice that by the time that those three objects remained in view, went back into the cloud bank, uh, his aircraft regained altitude and they made an emergency landing. Uh, so when they did, he was able to get out of the aircraft and notice that the side of the aircraft that he was looking out had oil all along the side. And he tried to uh, talk with the pilots, but they were whisked away for a briefing. And later he found out that there was all kinds of uh, problems with the engines and the the gauges in the cockpit. So it was his thoughts that there was some kind of correlation there with the sighting, but he could never verify that with the pilots since when he got to the Azuki Aerodrome, they, uh, they immediately had to go to task. What's significant is the United States had air superiority out in the, that part of the ocean. And as an intelligence officer, he was aware of the so-called Foo Fighters sightings being generated by the 
uh, Shafe Command in the European theater, plus they already had types of air, uh, sightings in the Pacific. So he was aware of this, and he, this was definitely something very unique. He assumed they were of the nature of the Foo Fighters that were being sighted, and, uh, of course, to the day he died, he believed that that sighting was something that was not ours. I understood him to say that uh, this was sort of an electromagnetic effect, and I say that because in the UFO phenomenon we have a lot of reports of uh, sightings where people have been close to the UFO and it's caused their engines to stall, it's caused their lights to dim, their radios to fade out, that sort of thing. And I was under the impression that Len was also under the impression that it was the close approach of these objects that kind of caused the problems with the aircraft. Is is that a correct assumption? Yes, he did believe that. Uh, of course, he wasn't sure of the distance because he was when he described the, the size, he said at arm's length they were the size of a dime, I believe. Um, so he... This was, of course, who knows what the distance would be. But yes, he did, he did believe that. And of course, the cover of my book is a color representation of what he drew of those particular sightings, that, that sighting, those objects. Now, if but you yes, he said, did believe yeah, that. Had, had you not said that, I was going to point out that the objects are on the front of your book uh, from Len Stringfield's description of what happened. So it was, a, it was a nice way to segue into a plug for your book as well, if you want to see what, <laughs> what Len... Len uh, thought. Uh, you mentioned, I, I, I guess you said they were disc-shaped, um, according to what Len had stri- uh, said. Um, were there common descriptions of these things? Were, there, uh, uh, were they all over the place? I know we talked about balls of light, or they have talked about balls of light and things like that, but do, do we have descriptions of solid objects and, and that sort of thing, too? We do. We have cigar-shaped uh, descriptions. We have balls of light, of course. We have various size, uh, from the size of a bomber to uh, what appears to be baseball size outside the aircraft, uh, disc-shaped. And I was trying to find the actual. What what I ran into with the, uh, with the research was I was trying to find the actual reports of the description, and I found a few. But most of the descriptions were coming back from the pilots and not put into the actual mission reports. They seemed to have been sanitized for whatever reason uh, as they went up the chain of command. And I, realized, I soon realized that when I was looking into the records that the raw mission reports being generated out of the fighter groups and the bomb groups, as they went up the chain of command, they became more brief uh, for the commanders to be able to look quickly and assess, and that way they could ask for further information from the air intelligence staff should they need it. Were there, were there, were there any instances where the um, uh, Foo Fighters actually interfered with the, with the aircraft? I mean, other than, you know, we have Len's example, of course, with the engine stalling, but I mean, were there places where the um, aircraft might have hit one of these things or been, been taken out of service by one of these things? Is, did you find anything like that? The only thing I found that that I could actually get a grasp on, and there was good documentation, plus I spoke to several of the pilots, was with the 14th Night Fighter Squadron. And what's significant about them is they are the ones who coined the term Foo Fighters. That, that term did not exist till late December 1944. Prior to that, it was called the ball, the thing, the light, rockets, jets, whatever the air intelligence uh, operatives writing the reports felt it may have been flares and with the 415th we soon found out that they were encountering these lights they were actually trying to engage in combat it never seemed that there was hostile intent but there was a true cat and mouse aspect regarding what they did and in one of the one of the pilots uh they actually took up a some uh thompson submachine <laughs> gun to try to fire at they were getting so close because it they could never get in behind these objects they would always be able to parallel outdistance them outrun them uh completely blank out and appear behind them so it was truly a, a dynamic that was it was frightening the actual pilots they did not understand it many thought it was german secret technology but there was never any 
attempt by the objects to cause physical damage that they were aware of. When you said they took uh, a Thompson submachine gun up. I, you said they also were night fighters. Aren't night fighters armed? Well, they are, but they. This one gentleman wanted to open the open the cockpit or whatever and try to fire out the side at them because they always parallel on the side of them or behind them. So they were armed, but the uh, I think there were a three-man crew in the bow fighters. Uh, this particular unit was using a lot of bow fighters. They weren't using the the, uh, the newer aircraft. They were the British uh, Bristol bow fighter. And for whatever reason, that the one of the gentlemen I interviewed discussed that, that it was a real problem they were going to try to shoot at it <laughs> like what i didn't understand uh how dynamic it was till you actually got to talk to the pilots and some of these things were larger than their aircraft which is really strange but they were completely a ball of light a phosphorus light they could never really distinguish anything of solidity within this and that's why the scientists back home said it was St. Elmo's fire, it was electromagnetic, electrostatic interference and things like this, which was completely causing the pilots to be upset because they felt they weren't being taken seriously. Well, I know, I know as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, when people are shooting at you with tracers, they look awfully big coming at you. And they don't even have to be very close to look awfully big. So I can understand why the pilots would be somewhat concerned about these lights flying around their aircraft, uh, given the circumstances. Yeah. Um, um, well, I was going to say... The circumstances... The, the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the circumstances were of such... A lot of the sightings were out open country. There was no flak involved. And there was nothing appearing on the radar, uh, the air intercept radar within the aircraft. And the next thing they know, they would see a light off the side, paralleling. It would just appear out of nowhere. And many of the instances weren't that they didn't, they were not able to trace the movement of the object. They would just appear. And that's what caused the big concern, because that meant they had some type of stealth technology, if it indeed was German technology. And they just couldn't understand why that would happen, and it would be one object or two objects, sometimes in, in, in threes, like a triangle would follow them, and then some of them would divert and go in different directions and disappear. So the actual maneuverability of these dictated they were not a flare and or an aircraft with a searchlight on it. Some people tried to think that's what was taking place. So what you're saying basically is the uh, people responsible for figuring this out couldn't figure it out, and they were trying all sorts of explanations to see if yes. something worked. But they didn't really have an idea of what they were seeing. And this worried the Allied High Command greatly, I understand. Oh, yes. There was, uh, just with the 415th, uh, Major Augsburger, who was the uh, commanding officer of the 415th Night Fighter, he, I spoke with him at length, and he said that uh, Fred Ringwald was his air intelligence officer, and nearly everyone in the unit saw these objects, including Major Augsburger. And they were fascinated. They realized they were dealing with some type of technology. They realized that they were indeed far more advanced in maneuverability and um, evasion tactics than they were capable of in their aircraft. And at one particular uh, time, Men showed up from Washington. This is how Major Augsburger described it. He said that men showed up from Washington to the unit headquarters and spoke with his air intelligence officer to take them up. And from what Major Augsburger said, they were from Washington, from the War Department, who were conducting an investigation. And that investigation paralleled an investigation that was already on the ground with several of the top scientists, including Dr. H.P. Robertson of the Robertson Com Panel Committee. Air Technical Intelligence was uh, out of the first, technical, first Tactical Air Force uh, under General Spatz for conducting an investigation. General Arnold had also instigated an investigation uh, utilizing his, I believe his, it was a speechwriter, one of his colonels, uh, Joe Chamberlain, w wrote the, the last article on the Foo Fighters for the uh, 
one of the mag. We're going to have to take. Music. Yeah, we're going to have to take a quick break here. We'll be back with Keith Chester talking about Foo Fighters. Uh, his book is called Strange Company and is available at anomalous, not anomalous, at Amazon.com and other bookstores like that. When we come back, we'll look a little bit more into what the High Command was doing and what they were looking at. Uh, about the Foo Fighters and what maybe conclusions they came to. So we will be back right after this with uh, Keith Chester. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. 
we are back with Keith Chester talking about Foo Fighters and uh, the reaction to the Allied High Command during the Second World War. You had mentioned that Robertson, H.P. Robertson, Dr. Robertson, who would later head the Robertson panel that suggested there was nothing to UFOs and came up with the great, great line about debunking the phenomenon, which we now use exclusively in the UFO field uh, about UFOs. Uh, but Robertson's name surfaces in that, and you were talking about um, General Arnold's and some of the other high commanders' uh, reaction to, to the Foo Fighters and the parallel investigations that were going on at the time. So we'll just we'll just start there. So the the Allies were very interested in what was going on. They were trying to figure it out, and they had a lot of scientists and uh, intelligence officers working toward that end. Yes, they did. Uh, it was very important that. They, everything was being viewed as German technology, first and foremost, but it still was bordering and going into the realm of phenomena and phenomenon within the intelligence reports because they could not explain it. So they had their top scientists. Many people don't understand that Dr. Robertson was, prior to the United States going over in 1942 to set up the 8th Air Force, he was with the London mission, which was a mission designed to correlate United States and British intelligence on all aspects of science. And when he got in there, uh, he was one of uh, General Spatz's top scientific advisors. And as the war progressed, Dr. Robertson became involved with every single top intelligence gathering mission of the war. That would be air technical intelligence. That would be the ALSOS mission, which was the atomic bomb intelligence gathering mission, which is extremely important because what they had to understand was if this type of aircraft existed, it was a delivery vehicle for, for weapons. And so they could not rule out that Germany or, or the Japanese didn't have something like this. Yet the intelligence coming in from captured uh, RAF, I mean, uh, German pilots and Japanese pilots and documentation and scientists did not warrant them to think that that's what they were encountering. So these investigations were set up, and there were no less than four, uh, one being generated right out of the War Department. The most important figure in the investigations would be Dr. David T. Griggs, who was a radar expert at the time. He was the scientific director to... Dr. Bowles, who was the uh, reported directly to the Assistant Secretary of War. And it was Dr. Griggs' mission to make sure we led the way and we were on top of all advancements in radar, weaponry, whatever, aircraft. And um, according to the Robertson Panel report, Dr. David T. Griggs was the most responsible person involved. So if you were looking for a holy grail of the investigations regarding what took place during World War II, it is the reports that were being generated by Dr. David T. Griggs, which have never been found. And one of the, when I first began this investigation, one of the most important things for me to do was to figure out, is there anything in official documentation to warrant me to spend so much time digging through the archives? And that came out of the Warren, I mean, the Robertson Panel Report, because in there, under a section called the Foo Fighters, there's a quote. If the term flying saucers had been popular in 1943 through 1945, these objects would have been so labeled. And there so Robert, indeed were. Robertson I'm himself is linking, is linking the Foo Fighters to flying saucers. That's excellent. Yes. You know, whoever penned that report, the Robertson Panel report, that is a quote, and that came with his uh, approval. And I know for a fact that uh, Robertson was investigating for General Spatz and General Arnold. He was attached to all of them, and he was looking into the Foo Fighter and whatever else they were being called at the time. And so, so, so this underscores this just underscores the idea that this this was the beginning of the modern UFO era, because there's another name that appears in your book, and I'm, I'm taking you slightly off tangent here, but another okay. name that appears in your book is Howard 
uh, McCoy. He was also yeah. invest, involved in the investigation of the ghost rockets during 1946. And when we move into uh, late 1946, 1947, he headed, headed up an unofficial investigation of these things uh, for uh, just general twining at Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And later, the report that everybody cites, Twining's letter from September of 1947, talking about the phenomenon being something real and not fictitious, um, Howard McCoy is probably the author of that, of that letter. So we have... Robertson, in 1940, early 1940s, late late in the war, involved in investigating Foo Fighters, and his report kind of links Foo Fighters to flying saucers. And we have Howard McCoy, who's involved in the investigation, and his name surfaces in your book, uh, being involved in this investigation, plus the ghost rockets and into 1947. So we have this long link, this thick link, uh, among these people that lead us from the Foo Fighters to the Flying Saucers. Exactly. And what's uh, the key point here is that leading the most important investigations, other than the ALSOS mission, which was also not only atomic bomb, but aircraft, chemicals, you name it, science-related, uh, the Air Technical Intelligence Command were orchestrating now the right field. And when they first began in the early 1940s, during the war, they had put together ATI crash teams, and these were crash teams of air and technical uh, intelligence off officers, three to a jeep, who would go out, find the crashed Japanese aircraft, report serial numbers on and on. By the European Theater and, and D-Day, we have these same crash teams coming into play, and the, the intelligence gathering directives were being generated out of right field. And so we have McCoy, we have Colonel Deerman, we have Donald Putt, Harold Watson, all big players in what became known as Project Sign. And these guys were up to their neck in gathering all the top intelligence, and that would include anything that would be considered a phenomenon. So all these reports from World War II that were definitely being funneled through them since Howard McCoy was running the 8th Air Technical Intelligence Command, at that time, or ATI teams, I should say, during World War II. Uh, there's so much material missing. And that's why when you come to the Robertson Powell report and they make a statement like that about the term flying saucer, it shows they had reams of material they had access to, yet they had no explanation that they were willing to put in there. And that, and that kind of leads to the point where, and it always struck me as kind of odd, but uh, Wendy Connor and uh, her, her friends discovered that uh, in December of 1946, prior to Arnold, months before Arnold, they had set up this unofficial investigation at Wright Field to look into this, this phenomenon. And, and the man given the order was Howard McCoy, but he's done this thing in during World War II. So he's basically doing the same thing in 1946 that he was doing in 1944. Uh, it was called Foo Fighters then. It became uh, Flying Saucers later. So we see that, that the intelligence had been gathered through uh, since World War II and that they applied those lessons to the investigations when they began looking at the Flying Saucer phenomenon. So we can see that that whole thing brought together. Exactly, there was there's a complete chain of command right from uh, General Eisen, uh, General Eisenhower's office in Chafe. That's where a lot in the European theater, all the way through into 1947 and beyond, all the key men related to post-war, if air intelligence had all the best information. These these guys were investigating all the documentation, they had all the scientists, they had all the pilots, they had everything they needed to determine what the phenomenon was, if it indeed was a phenomenon, as it was being reported. Well, here's, here's so a question that springs to mind when you're talking about this, and we've seen pictures of Foo Fighters that have been published in books. Do you think any of those pictures are authentic? What are your thoughts on the pictures? That, uh, well, some of them are very... Tantalized. And I used to, I think I used a couple in the book and I, I had permission to use these, but I did not 
I had did not have time to follow the trail of where they came from, who had them, could I determine the truth behind them. So that was one element I did not um, pursue. I have time to pursue. And I have seen a lot that have proven to be fake. And so now I'm not sure about it. But all I can say is when I went into the National Archives, I spent four years there. There was not a lot of mention of, of photographic material, yet we know there were thousands upon thousands of movie footage, still photographs being taken. And there's no doubt in my mind, by late war, some of these photo intelligence operations, they had aircraft just set up with cameras, were going up to encounter these things or at least try to find them. So I would think that there was something there. But in the official records, I see no photographs. I don't know where these photographs are surfacing from that we see uh, on the Internet and things like that. But there was nothing in the official records that I was I was viewing. I spent four years there trying to, to dig through, and there's so much more to see. And my book is only really a primer. But it's a very good one. And I noticed the one picture in there, uh, I think it's on page 141, it says an alleged photograph of a, of a Foo Fighter over uh, aircraft sitting on the field. And that just kind of strikes me as odd that um, we know they were doing photo reconnaissance. We know that there were fighters set up with um, gun cameras and that sort of thing. And it seems odd that none of that material has ever surfaced, which suggests, yeah. and I hate to go in a conspiratorial move, mood here, but it suggests that some information is being hidden from the public for some reason. And what could be that um, important that it needs to be uh, still classified in today's environment? I mean, clearly there has been nothing that's happened to us that would suggest that these things were hostile if they are in fact things uh if they were observing us in in some fashion there it just seems to boggle my mind why these uh, photographs and movie footage have virtually disappeared exactly there's so many gaps in the paperwork and the paper trail that is that it truly when i was at this is 2007 uh, from about 2004, five to seven. Um, I'm sorry, I, I have that backwards. It, it, it was a four-year period prior to the publication of the book. When I was at the National Archives at that time, that I was aware of through the archivist, there was 1,500,000 documents of air intelligence records still classified from World War II, and this is one area of of the archives, that's not to mention other record groups that held air intelligence records. I could go on and on about how the records are, are stored at the National Archives. Well, we'll, 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 not, we'll, not, we'll not go on and on about the storage of records yeah. at the National Archives. We will move yeah, on to so. other areas of more interest, but um, we're going to have to take a final break here. We're talking with Keith Chester, who's written the book on... Foo Fighters called Strange Company, and it's available at the, the various bookstores, online shops, and that sort of thing. When we come back, I'm going to ask him specifically about um, our aircraft firing at their aircraft, uh, the Foo Fighters, and see what we can learn from that. But we will be back right after this. As host of Dialogue with Divinity, I am thrilled to join the Exxon Broadcast Network and their growing number of affiliates. My quest for a connection to the divine ignited my successful career path as an international spiritual counselor for over 40 years, an author of four books, and well-known metaphysical educator. My clients call me their spiritual mama. So my job is to offer you a radio show to help you grow spiritually with wisdom and get specific tools from guests who are experts in their field. Tune in to Dialogue with Divinity and be part of the conversation with Spirit. My goal, your happy soul. For more information, please visit my website at johannacarroll.com.
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7-365. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. Genix provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. 
Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. And we are back with Keith Chester, the man who wrote the book on Foo Fighters, Strange Company. This is becoming fascinating. We're not getting to any of the stuff that I really wanted to do here because we keep going off on tangents as usually happens. Uh, We were talking about the high command and their interest in this thing. So it's clearly that something was very important to the Allies because they thought it might be enemy weapons. Clearly, when the war ended, they learned the truth of that. I was wondering... um, you talked about the Foo Fighters being seen by bombers and that sort of thing, and that um, the Night Fighter Squadron had attempted to fire on these things. Were there other incidents where the uh, crews of bombers or fighters or whatever uh, fired on the on the on the Foo Fighters? I don't know why I couldn't think of the term Foo Fighter for the minute, but were there were there examples of them be, being fired upon? The only example that I came across that had some significance to it was a case that was, I think, originally investigated by Wendy Connors. Uh, and this is June 25, 1942, where a Lieutenant Roman Sabinski was flying out over, over Holland, I believe, and they, he encountered a copper object the size of a full moon that was moving radically towards the aircraft. And the, they f- turned into the object thinking it was a rocket or some type of new uh, – an, or an aircraft with a, a – searchlight, which many people thought during the early part of the war. And they fired into this object, and they knew that it was being absorbed. The actual machine gun tracers were being absorbed by this particular light. And that is probably one of the most fascinating, because we get to hear Sabinsky discuss this and how it unnerved him. And, of course, they thought he was drunk, the crew was drunk, and this started... Uh, the whole issue of ridicule on the ground by the uh, air intelligence officers. But they quickly learned to stop doing that because they realized that the pilots were going to stop talking. And Air Command said, we can't have that. They need to report. So an order was given, do not ridicule these men. So they do give us the information that they are encountering, and we'll deal with it afterwards. You know, what's interesting about that is the first reaction to the guy telling about what he had seen and what had happened was that he was drunk. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, that kind of pervades the entire UFO phenomenon almost, well, from, from Arnold's sighting onward, at least I know in 1947, there was a headline that said saucers seen in 38 States, except Kansas, Kansas being a dry state. So there were no drunks to oh. see the flying saucers. Uh, but this this kind of leads to the question, and since we just have a very few minutes left here, I wanted to ask you, did they ever come up with any answers to what the Foo Fighters were? No. I uncover, I, not in the book was some post-war, this would have been like November 1945, intelligence memoranda that went to, doc, uh, to uh, General McDonald. General McDonald was the air air intelligence officer for the, the Army Air Forces of World War II, reporting directly to General Arnold, who was commanding general. And at that time, he had access to the top reports uh, of the phenomenon, so they specifically were going after the top German scientists in aviation that we had at Wright Field and around the country at facilities, interrogating, finding out what it was that may have been German technology, and they came up with a complete unknown. There was the German scientists had no idea, and that's when I lost the paper trail. So that would have been November 1945, regarding specifically the uh, the Foo Fighter phenomenon. And then, of course, it, it comes back in 1953 in the Robertson Panel report. But the interesting thing is, well, the war ended, so there was no longer a, a priority to learn. Uh, what was going on. Obviously, uh, there was no longer any danger to our flight crews or anything because the war had ended. So did the did the investigation sort of peter out at that point, or did they still try to figure out what these things were after the, the emphasis on finding out what they were after the war ended, basically? Well, there's 
my understanding is that the investigations continued. Uh, they just kept analyzing documentation. There were probably behind-the-scenes interrogations and continued uh, interviews. That I should say not interrogation. That's a bad word. But, uh, of course, that's why we see people like McCoy involved with Project Sign and why, you know, he probably was involved because he had access to the top information. And, and we are still dealing with a phenomenon now that's taking place over the United States that he, he would have to continue this. So I think there was an investigation that never stopped, in my opinion. So that would, be, that would explain why they were interested in the uh, ghost rockets in Sweden in 1946, because Absolutely. it was a continuation. And then, of course, uh, it also I was also bothered by the fact that you know, we have the report that McCoy set up this office, this unofficial investigation in 1946, December of 1946. And now we sort of see the emphasis behind that. You know, here's a phenomenon that started during the war. It is continuing on, and it suggests there's some kind of a reporting system for these sorts of sightings that existed inside the uh, the military at the time, it, 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 after the war, there was some kind of a reporting system, so that they would be ga still gathering that information. Absolutely, McCoy was in charge of the uh, air technical library, so he had access to all the documentation, all the reports, and so Wright Field at the time was still running the show, and I have no doubt that. It may not have been a hot spot type of investigation, but it was definitely something that was being uh, reviewed and constantly thought about. And we don't know to the degree because there's no paper trail. Uh, so that there's no doubt in my mind, given the General McDonald report in late 45. Again, there's so much that we haven't uncovered paper trail. But it leads to the haven't found the Greeks report. Yeah, it leads to the conclusion that they never stopped investigating once the war was over, and that suggests that there, that was why McCoy had the office opened up in December of 1946 at Wright Field to continue to gather those reports, and why they would do something like that. This gives us the motivation for them doing something like that, simply because they're still searching for answers to a phenomenon they did not understand that did influence the way things were going in all theaters of the war during 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 the Second World War. And that's my understanding. I, I totally agree with you. So they were unable to find an answer. There are reports that they were engaged by our aircraft, um, that sort of thing. They, I guess you could say, harassed Allied aircraft, um, I mean, just the mere appearance of them would be considered a harassment on, on one, one scale, I suppose. So we have all of that information, and I always had thought that it ended with the Second World War, but it really didn't. It continued on, and that means that when Arnold made his report and it was splashed all over the newspaper, McCoy and those people were probably very annoyed about it. Absolutely. They, were, they had their, their orders to keep, keep their mouth shut. And again, you have – when I tackled the subject, I tried to pretend I was an air intelligence officer during the time. And at that time, when you, when you read the literature, you understand that it was looked at as secret weaponry. And so the conspiracy theorists that you'll come across now or, or people who are just trying to find the alternative explanation is that Germany was so advanced that when we brought the scientists over – that advancement was something that had to be kept quiet because we were at war with Russia uh, from from the time that Germany fell. Pretty much is when the war with Russia began. And, so and by that you mean a Cold War, obviously. The Cold War, yes. And so, if indeed there was some type of technological advancement that we had uncovered, but there was no way they wanted that out. So. I, you know, there's that aspect of it, and but it doesn't add up because then you're you're finding all the reports of looking into the air phenomenon as if they have no clue. They could easily just shut it down, say nothing. 
But there's well, a little scramble there. What you've done here has actually solidified my belief that the flying saucer phenomenon as we know it today began with the Foo Fighters in World War II. And as you've explained, we have the same people involved in the investigation then and in the investigation after Kenneth Arnold made his um, spectacular sighting in June of 1947. All of that is all connected together. So when we talk about the beginning of the modern era, we're actually wrong by, by placing it in June of 1947. We should be placing it during World War II. Exactly. Exactly. Starting with uh, Schaeff, uh, General Eisenhower's office in Europe, in France. So it, it, it once they really set up base and took over being their own independent element of the war, you know, versus working with the RAF in the early part of the war, that's when I think that the great emphasis was made to set up their own investigations. Because the British were doing it on their own prior, prior to Schaeff. They were investigating air phenomena, and uh, that would be 1940 on. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because I think any other question I ask is going to take us way too long to get an answer for. So we will uh, take off at this moment here. I'd like to thank uh, Keith Chester for joining me today. It's been absolutely fascinating. If you want to learn more about this, take a look at his book, Strange Company. And as I've said repeatedly, it's available online. It's from Anomalous Books. It is literally the Bible on the Foo Fighters. It is loaded with documentation. It is loaded with footnotes so you can see exactly where the information came from. If you're interested in uh, UFOs in general, take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which we've been having a discussion that was generated on another show about the Lonnie Zamora sighting. And I have uh, just learned that the book Roswell in the 21st Century is available at uh, Amazon.com and uh, Nook as an ebook. So I thank you, uh, Keith, for joining me today. And we will be back next week with Brad Steiger, who is, I would consider, the dean of American UFO researchers and a phenomenologist. <laughs>